it is always a collective goal. And sometimes it's very hairy and audacious and sometimes it's more conservative. In some places, you can work with the government, you can work with people to bring about the change in the system. And in other places where there is no government or a very weak government, sometimes you have to scale to reach the last mile. That conservative for me may be hairy for you. For me, a million children in a hundred countries was a very conservative goal. But that's what the partners said they wanted. So I said, okay. So what would have been an audacious goal for you? 10 million kids in three years. We could have done it. This is Mission to Scale, a podcast that reveals the tools, mindsets and strategies that organizations and funders need to maximize their impact. Because the world's biggest problems need solutions at scale. I'm your host, Dan Borelovitz, founder and CEO of Spring Impact. In the world of social change, there are only a handful of people I truly consider to be systems leaders. Our next guest, Jeruba Lamoria, is one of them. Jeru is a scholar wardy and Ashoka and Schwab Fellow. She started and co-founded some of the social sector's most innovative non-profit organizations and monumental partnerships, including Catalyst 2030. In 1996, Jeru created Childline India, which gives free 24-7 emergency phone service for children who desperately need it. She also started Aflatoon International, a network of global partners that provides social and financial education to over 1 million children in 100 countries. This work in financial education led her to create Child and Youth Finance International, or CYFI. I invited Jeru because I knew that she would share an unfiltered version of what systems change is in practice through her hard-won experience. In this episode, we'll dive into how scaling and systems change interact, We'll talk about goal setting and her critical advice for entrepreneurs who want to take a systems approach. Systems change to me is trying to work with the actors in the system to try to shift it from place A to place B. And I never talk about just systems change. I talk more about collaborative systems change. So... If you see a solution, trying to make sure that that solution works and all the actors which are around are able to work. So that may be changing government policy, working with the government to be able to then make the policy shift and implement it. It's also changing the mindsets at the community level. It's changing how it is done, the paradigms that are there. So I look at systems change at multiple levels at the level of the community with whom you're working with, at the level of the stakeholders whom you're working with and their mindsets, and then at the level of the policy change that you need and the implementation framework for the policy change. That feels very broad, all the things that you mentioned. How do you define the size of your system? How do you define sort of where the system starts and finishes so that you're really able to do something? It's based on the issue. So, for example, with the child line, it was mainly with the whole issue of child protection. And what were the different things that we wanted to see? 
to change so that you could ensure better child protection for children. And then helplines, which was what I was running, was just the intervention strategy to try to understand how to evolve a comprehensive child protection system in India and then through child helplines globally. You talked about collaboration being critical or maybe even sort of integral part of the definition of systems change. How did you come to that realization that that was the critical component? Well, it's very simple. The government is ultimately the key deliverer of services. They are mandated to. So you can't let them go scot-free. Private sector, neither private sector nor civil society can take away from what are the basic functionalities of the government. So you need to have the government in place and strengthen the government and work in partnership with the government to make things happen. So, for example, in Aflatun, when we were looking at financial education or social and financial education, as we called it, we basically worked with central banks and ministries of education to see how that could happen. And at the global level, worked with OECD, worked with the Alliance for Financial Inclusion, with Basel, to make sure that the whole ecosystem started looking at it. And initially, that was not even part of the discussion or dialogues. And then when it became mainstream, then our role ends, and that's why we shut CYFI down. Because we were able to hand it over to the main government bilateral bodies or the government bodies at the local level and the multilaterals at the global level. So I think it's basically identifying the issue, identifying the stakeholders who are integral to the issue becoming mainstream and then working towards making that happen such that nobody even thinks it was an issue before. So you talked about a couple of different organizations there. Could you talk a bit about what Aflatoon, which I believe was the first organization in the finance space you set up, does, and then how that gave birth to CFI, Child Finance International? Aflatoon is basically about social and financial education for children and young people. And it's about skills building, capacity building, thus giving them the financial wherewithal. So that is what Aflatun was doing. And because we had the social franchise model, we were able to reach 100 countries and a million plus children within three years. So there were systems in place where we could scale. But then we had a glass ceiling because when you have a brand, not everyone wants to necessarily work with a brand, but everyone likes the concept. And that's why independent to Aflatun, we set up Child and Youth Finance International, where Systematically based on the experience of Aflatun, we knew who were the key stakeholders. We invited them to the co-creation of Child and Youth Finance International. And then Child and Youth Finance International became the holding body for advocating for the issue of financial inclusion for children and young people, for 21st century skills in linking at them to finance, as we used to call them, so the social aspect of it, and for child-friendly products and services. This organization, CYFI, had central banks, had the UN bodies, had OECD on the board, because then it was not an issue by any individual NGO, but by multiple NGOs and by key stakeholders. And when we were able to mainstream some of these concepts and help governments create rollout and implementation strategies, the role of CYFI was done. 
because we handed it over and then we decided since our role is over, we have managed to influence the system that we wanted to and make the concepts mainstream, we decided CYFI didn't have to continue. So we actually ideologically shut it down. It's a pretty extraordinary story. I mean, you make it sound very straightforward, but you went from it you know, is. <laughs> you went from huge direct impact to realizing that you needed to change the system, so created CYFI and then shut it down. So it sounds like to you shutting it down was not a big decision, but I mean, it is so unusual that organizations actually shut down. Did you get pushback? How did you deal with that? Of course, we got lots of pushback because most organizations are built for perpetuity. And when you have governors of central banks and large organizations, which are built that way, telling them our role is over and therefore we need to shut down, it's like just not done. Ultimately, you have to look at what is your role? Is your role adding value? Is it not adding value? We could have continued. And I think all the central banks would have backed us to continue because they said, why do you need to shut down? You can continue. You can grow. We can help you grow. But you have to stay true to your mission. And our mission was achieved. And I think more and more people need to stay true to the mission and say, if our mission is achieved, we need to shut down because that's what makes us different and unique as systems change organizations. So looking back on the decision to close down and what you know now about how the system has changed, would you have done things the same or is there different things you would have done? Not really, no. I'm proud to see how much where we handed over and to see some of the things that were set up also growing. For example, Global Money Week, which was one of the flagship projects which got all the central banks and the ministries of education around the whole issue of financial inclusion and social and financial inclusion for young children is now taken over by OECD. And the last event in March, it was owned by the princess and the head of OECD. When we were an NGO, we did it, but we never had them taking ownership and being there at the inauguration. So you see that it has moved further because it got further integrated into the system. I think the one thing is that from day one, we knew our role would come to an end or we had said it up front. We had said we'd do it in five years. It took seven years, but I think that's about the only difference. In your TED Talk, you talk about the importance of collaboration but also scale and systems change. How do you see scale and systems change interacting? Can you have one without the other? Are they both needed? I think both are needed and it's for different things. In some places, you can work with the government, you can work with people to bring about the change in the system. And in other places where there is no government, because of conflict or whatever reason, or a very weak government, sometimes you have to scale to reach the last mile. So I think it's very, very difficult to say either or. Ideally, the more you put things into the system, the more you create buy-in and collaboration across sectors and work together, the more people you can reach. And ultimately, for every one of us in the sector, we do what we do to be able to change the lives for the better for as many people in the world as possible. 
And if that stays our mission, then we have to look at whatever strategies come to make those happen. So why is scaling impact important? Because you have a proof of concept. And when you have a proof of concept, changing the system becomes easier. So can you talk more about that? So what is a proof of concept? If you go with 100 people, if I went with 100 people to the government of any country, they weren't going to listen, right? So even if I look at Child Lang, we had a pilot. We knew we wanted to go national. Therefore, we advocated for a four-digit number right since inception. And we started collecting the data of the calls which were coming in and what were the types of interventions right in the beginning. But when we went to the government, they said, this is great. So many thousand calls in a year is phenomenal. But it's in one city. You don't expect the government to take one experiment in one city and take it national. But then we said, okay, we partnered with the government. We said, we partner with you and tell us how many cities it is that you want to be able to take us to, which will make it a national endeavor. They said 30 cities and you have a period of maximum three years. We said, okay, that seems a reasonable target. Let's just make it happen. And we were able to, we exceeded the target by far. We were able to do it. And today, as a result of that co-created partnership, Chailang India, I think, covers 600 districts of India out of the 624. So we've been able to reach almost 90% national coverage. It took time. It was in partnership. But that's how you need to make things happen. So in that case, you had a goal imposed on you by the Indian government. It wasn't a goal imposed. It was a partnership. They told us you have to do it. I asked them what would it take for us to be able to scale to every district or every village of India. And that's where I say the proof point has to come. It was the same for Aflatun. If we had gone with 10,000 children and told every central bank in the world, saying, hey, you have to do this. We have this amazing pilot with 10,000 kids. They would have been very polite and walked us out of the door. But when we had a 100 countries, a million kids, solid documented evidence, you know. And I always say scaling becomes easier if you're collaborating with people. We had 119 partners when we got to the 100 countries. One major partner leading. So it becomes so much easier. So I'm interested in the role that goals play and goal setting. So I think what you're saying is you need to scale. If your solution reaches a certain scale, suddenly you're able to collaborate with a whole range of other people and get their attention in a different way, change the system. No, no, no. What I'm saying is you may have the goal, but you actually should put collaboration into your DNA to build the goal. Right from the start. Right yeah. from the start. That is the key. Otherwise, you're scaling your organization and not the concept. And to me, scale is not about scaling the organization. It's about scaling the concept and working with people constantly to scale the concept. And it's not your concept because the minute you start collaborating, it becomes everybody's concept. And that means you take everybody's feedback forward. And so how do you keep any 
control of it or at least make sure it's on track in terms of impact when it's owned by everyone? Because at least in Aflatun, we always said we had certain core elements. The child helpline has certain intervention paradigms. So you always have what may be the core. And the latest in Catalyst, we've created a very solid theory of change. And we always try to say, okay, this action, does it fit with the theory of change with the members created? And then we take it forward. So you need a very strong logic behind what you're doing, which everyone understands collectively. Or a in very the strong strategy. Yeah. Yes. Very or a strong. very strong strategy. Right, right. Yeah. Interesting. What's the role that goal setting plays in your work in scaling and then changing systems? Do you set yourself like a big, hairy, audacious goal, as they call them, or do you take a different approach? I take the approach of what the collaborators want to do. So it is always a collective goal. And sometimes it's very hairy and audacious and sometimes it's more conservative. That conservative for me may be hairy for you. For me, a million children in a hundred countries was a very conservative goal. But that's what the partners said they wanted. So I said, okay. So what would have been an audacious goal for you? 10 million kids in three years. We could have done it. It's extraordinary talking to you always because you're one of the few people I know that says things like that and then could actually 100% deliver it. <laughs> I don't think it's about me at all. It's about collaboration and the people who do it. Even with Catalyst, we said I said certain goals and almost nobody would listen and say it's possible. But I said, just believe in the power of the collective, it will happen. It did. Most recent example, I'm sorry, I really have to give this to you because I'm so proud of the membership. We were doing something called the People's Report where we wanted to hear what the last mile had to say and share that with the UN, share that with other people. So the voices of the people could be brought to policymakers, donors, etc. This has been tried by large bodies with unteam resources. We had no money, but we said, let's try it. Nobody's done it. Let's set a goal. Okay, conservative. Let's try 10,000 because we had a month to collect the data. And we did. We reached 17,000 responses and our membership translated the survey into 43 different languages. So the collective power was so strong in bringing about the change because it was the change that everyone wanted to see. It was the narrative shift that everyone wanted. And therefore, I really believe that if it's never an individual's goal, it is always the collective's goal and the power of the collective which will make change happen. In 2017, Giroux founded One Family Foundation, a social innovation incubator that launched Catalyst 2030. Social entrepreneurs from Ashoka, Echoing Green, the Schwab Foundation, Skoll Foundation and other networks were frustrated at the ceiling they were reaching when it came to their individual power to change systems, especially when it comes to policy change. They decided to collaborate to make systems more amenable to policy changes and ultimately create massive impact at scale. In January 2020, Catalyst 2030 was launched at the World Economic Forum. We want to actually see the SDGs being achieved instead of them being slated to be achieved by 2082. So Catalyst 22 was people all saying, let's go come together and let's do something. 
And also let's break this very siloed approach which everyone wants us to have. It was an idea. It started as a WhatsApp group. There were a hundred of us or so. At first there were 30, 40. It just grew organically. And uh, today it's a movement. I think we have more than a, around a thousand members in the last year doing multiple different things and all working together to shift the narrative and the sector change and to actually make social innovation and enterprise into a sector. So we have a seat at the table. So we are able to change the policy. So it doesn't take a Jaru alone five years to change the policy. But because we've already created the environment, the new person who wants to do it can do it in five months. So it's a whole mindset shift which we are trying to get and a whole ecosystem shift. And no one person can do this. Catalyst is like you, Dan. You came in, you contributed, you helped towards building it. And everyone is doing that. Everyone's giving that piece. That's what it is. So really adding strength to all these entrepreneurs with ideas that need to create change in systems already. I just want to push on this idea. So I completely see where you're coming from in terms of the power of the collaboration. And yet you are catalyzing these in a way that is pretty unusual, actually. And so I guess what I'm interested in is what are the things that you are doing to kickstart, to provide the spark to these systems change strategies? You talked a bit about sort of creating a strong strategy and framework and collaboration, but there is clearly a set of things that you're doing that I'd love to hear sort of what those key things are whenever you're getting started on a project like this. I don't think I'm doing anything different, but if there's one strategy I believe in, which I've not been articulated as much, but I really believe accelerates collaboration, is whoever is the convener has to play the role of an honest broker. That means it's never about the convener. It's about everybody else. It's about the collective and placing the collective above the individual. And I think that's what's really, really key in accelerating change. So you're saying that you're playing the role of honest broker, but I have worked with you for a number of years or at least been in the orbit. And I've seen that you can sometimes be quite forceful in saying things need to happen. So I guess that's what I'm interested in getting at is that I've seen you in action and it's a bit like watching a whirlwind in a path. And I think when I hear you speak, you're embodying this servant leadership idea. So could you maybe talk a bit more about that whirlwind? Like, yes, you're playing this honest broker role, but also you are saying what you want and what you think needs to happen. The main thing is, I will state what have we said is our collective goal. And that is something which will always be there. You understand? And then if we are moving all over the place, I will say, okay, guys, we've done everything. Now, what are we? Are we moon taking stock? So when I come in is when you have to take stock to see whether we are following the path or not. And ultimately, I would say the role I would play is the same role any consultant would play or anyone who's doing group work and facilitation would play. Keeping in mind that this is not my goal, this is the group's goal. The important thing is you have to be an honest broker. But don't forget when you're an honest broker, you're making sure that the deal gets done. 
So you're always moving people towards the goal at their pace, not at your pace. I've had enough and more times when I have tried to move people at my pace and people have said, shut up, wait. I always say, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Listen and then speak only when it's necessary. There's something about the confidence that you've brought to these, the strong vision and then the confidence that galvanizes these movements to happen. And so I think that fundamentally what you've said makes total sense. And then there's just the confidence to go out there and do it. Where does that come from? Where does your drive to just go out there and do it come from? And how can others work towards that? Because I don't think too much. <laughs> it's a, I wasn't planning on facilitating Catalyst in any way. It was a WhatsApp group. We thought it was a great idea. There was no money. So I said, okay, let's do it. I was retired. <laughs> Not too much thinking. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dan. Honestly speaking, I think we as entrepreneurs need to stop taking ourselves so seriously. And we need to learn to go with the flow. And whereas I am extremely strategic with strategy plans and all of that is very, very important. Yeah. But you can't let that dictate the network. So what tips would you give to an entrepreneur or someone within an organization who wants to really step into building a system strategy? Have an idea about what you want to change. Convene as an honest broker. Ensure strategic connections which need to happen. Celebrate the good moments that you need to have because it's a tough, tough, tough journey. Calibrate. Make sure you measure where you're going. Always take stock, you know, on how you want to do it. Create a sense of collective energy so to cohere around things that you're doing, you know. And remember, at every level, ultimately, be aware of your own consciousness and of others because then you can change the collective consciousness towards the goal you want to achieve. What I love about Giroux is that she's the equivalent of a healthy, balanced diet when it comes to social impact. She's recognised the importance of understanding the system, knowing which levers to pull, knowing what to scale and how, and getting everyone working together for common good. And then she knows how to process all this complex information for massive impact. That's it from us. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and took away how you can use a mix of these concepts and ideas in your own work. Please don't forget to subscribe or follow our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And while you're there, I'd appreciate it if you could rate and give us a review. If you love Mission to Scale, I hope you recommend our show to a friend or a colleague. And if you want to find out more about Catalyst 2030, the social change movement Giroux talks about in the episode, you can visit the website at catalyst2030.net and we'll put it in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter. Twitter.